my name is Nick. If you don't know me, I, I am one of the elders here, lead pastor, uh, happy to bring you God's word. Um, we'll just get right in this morning, but I will say, uh, are you guys enjoying the sunshine here? You guys feeling good? It's nice, right? Oh, it's amazing. I know I'm getting, I'm taking my kids out to the hills. I'm doing everything I can, uh, to enjoy the weather and the, the green. Uh, it's beautiful. If, if we're, if we're going to be able to see spring through the haze of allergies, uh, I have a feeling the wildflowers and things are going to be awesome this year. So I'm excited. Um, anyways, let's get into Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, some lovely gentlemen will, will bring one to you. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep it as always or if you want to give it away, um, keep it and give it away. But we're going to be in Luke 5 this morning and we're going to read verses 33 to 39. I'll read it, pray, and then we'll dive in. Bear in mind the context, we're still kind of, you know, around the table with Levi, tax collectors, sinners, it seems, according to Luke's gospel. And uh, there's this conversation now that's going on. Luke 5, verse 33, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. A lot of stuff that might seem a bit mysterious there. We're going to dive in, but let me, let me uh, pray. God, there's a reason why looking back uh, a year ago or, or more when we began this series that I wanted to call, call it Luke, All Things New. Because the great mega theme, it seems to me, in this gospel is Christ coming into something old, broken, failed, and making it new. Not just creation, but sinners like me. You take, you take adulterers, you take idolaters, you take the hard-hearted, you take the suffering, the struggling, the depressed, the sin sick, and you make them new. And so God, this morning, as we kind of 
look at a couple pictures you give us that present that sort of idea. I pray that you would come, your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word. Just like your spirit accompanied your word on day one of creation. And you would recreate in this room. You would restore and renew in this room. God, come and do what only you can do. And receive the glory that is yours alone. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to dive right in here with you guys. Um, But before I do, uh, I I don't want to miss the fact, as I kind of mentioned before I read the text, that this conversation um, that that composes our text actually happens in the context of, of, of this feast. This conversation is happening while Jesus is sitting around the table with tax collectors and sinners, guys that he should not be around the table with, according to the Pharisees and their scribes, and any serious Jew. We see that in verse 29. I'll try to bring us back into the story. It says, And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Jesus here is feasting. With tax collectors and sinners, the serious Jew, the the Pharisees or the disciples of John, whoever it is that's coming now to talk to him, they're seething. While Jesus is feasting, they are seething. They are furious that he would do such a thing. So again, it's this feast that Jesus is having with these sinners and tax collectors that sits in the background of our text even this morning. And so because of that, I want to delineate um, my headings kind of in relation to that feast. So you'll see them on your handout if you have one. But we're going to look this morning at four things. First, feasting unto repentance. Kind of this backwards idea that I wanted to bring out from verses 29 through 32 by way of of getting us into our our text proper this morning. And then secondly, we'll see feasting with the bridegroom, verses 33 through 35. Third, feasting in the new day, verses 36 to 39. And then four, feasting and yet fasting. So that's where we're headed this morning. I hope that you're with me. I hope that you're awake. You filled your, your, uh, your, your brain with some Starbucks and we're ready to go. Um, first, feasting unto repentance. Now, I'm going back behind our text for a moment just to get us into the story. Um, we're in verses 29 through 32 at, at, at this point. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to look at that. For the last two weeks, um, we've been in that text and, and we've been calling, uh, you know, looking at what I've called Jesus's and Levi's table strategy. How they use the table, the dinner table, or this, this banquet table, or whatever this table is. They used it, and Jesus uses it all the time, to advance his uh, mission, his kingdom in the world. That it's often around the table that Jesus reveals his redemption to people. And Levi picks up on this and uses the table too. And you and I, I called us last week to use the table to not necessarily reveal redemption, but to reinforce the redemption that Christ has revealed. 
And so last week we dealt with that, but there's one more thing that I wanted to bring out from that text. Let me read um, to you verses 30 to 32 here for a moment. Because though this meal, as we saw in weeks prior, is a sign of intimacy and fellowship, a sign that the Savior has come for sinners. He is a friend of sinners. If you're a sinner in this room, he, is, he, wants, he wants to be your friend. It's not a shame to be associated with you. But while this meal represents intimacy and fellowship, I didn't bring out the fact that it actually ends with a call to repentance. It ends with a call to repentance. And I just wanted to sit on that just for a moment. And then we'll get into um, verses 33 through 39. But look at verse 30 here. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. And they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then here he says it. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here's what I wanted to to meditate on with you guys for a moment. This call to repentance. (laughs) What we see in this is that the meal Jesus shares with these people doesn't represent kind of this wholesale uh, uh, tolerance, acceptance of all that they stand for. It doesn't represent, uh, hey, listen, you know, whoever you are, wherever you're at, I don't care what you've been involved in, and, I, and I, I'm happy to receive you, and you can stay in it. The table, the feast that he, that he, uh, he, he engages in with these people, it's amazing. It actually encompasses two sides. It shows that he not only accepts the sinner, loves the sinner, does embrace them right where they're at, and comes after us and wants us to just come dirty as we are. But it shows the other side of that reality as well, that he, he also convicts the sinner and, and, and calls the sinner out. If I could put it this way, Jesus has this way of not only calling us in and assuring us of his love, he also has this way of calling us out at the same time. Have you experienced that in your own life where you come to Christ and, and somehow or other you, you have this sense that he loves you even as he's pointing out certain things that are just not right in your heart? It's this amazing way that God uh, has with sinners like us. We, we, we can make no mistake about it. He loves us even in our sin. I mean, that's the whole message of the cross, right? Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us when we were beautiful. He died for us when we were filthy. So his love comes for us right where we're at, but he doesn't leave us right where we're at. And that's what I just wanted to bring out. I think these Pharisees miss it. I think these Pharisees and their scribes miss it. They're grumbling. What are you doing eating with these guys? As if he's just kind of wholesale accepting everything that they do. But that's not the case. He absolutely loves them. And it's because he loves them that he both accepts them and is going to call them out. And call them into righteousness. Call them into life. It's like he gives them uh, around the table. He gives them a taste of his goodness in his grace, and then he calls them to turn from sin that they may taste even more. You catching, you catching that 
with me, it truly is, in that sense, his kindness that leads to repentance. I don't know if you remember that verse, Romans 2, 4. It's always interesting. His kindness leads us to repentance. I thought it was his fury. (laughs) I thought it was his law and his holiness. Now, that's true. But man, what I'm seeing here is Jesus comes to the table. He shows he's so willing to accept us. I'm going to lay down my life for you. If you would have me, I'm ready to receive you. But here's the deal. You've got you to leave the devil's table if you want to enjoy mine in full. If you want to enjoy mine in full. He calls us in and calls us out. And the reason why I wanted to bring this out is because I think we uh, often are good at one side or the other of this equation. If I'm not mistaken. Um, oftentimes, uh, a lot, some of us are, are really good at the calling in piece. Like we can use our table to call in. We, we want to just welcome, accept, we're so loving. But man, when it get, it's time to say, hey, repent for the kingdom of, of, of heaven is near. Or repent because we want to turn from darkness of sin to life. And Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. When it comes time to say that, we just kind of start... Uh, pass the pasta, you know? Okay. Uh, we, we, we chicken out to some degree. And our love kind of aborts. It, it, it kind of, it doesn't complete itself fully like we see Jesus who calls in and calls out. But then you have the other side of the equation that isn't good either, and that's those that are experts at calling out. In fact, you can't even imagine sharing the table with people who, you know, are that depraved and would watch that kind of show or would use that kind of language or do that sort of thing. You see, Jesus isn't afraid of, of the, the messed up, the dirty, the filthy. He's not offended by their language or their behavior. He doesn't just have to sit there on the outside and call them out. And then I'll call you in. Once you're clean, come on in. No, he does both. Calls in and calls out. Assures us that he accepts us, loves us, but then convicts us of the sin that would keep us from fellowship with him in full. And he does this sort of thing around the table. And I just wanted to ask, are we doing that or on ours? So let me um, move us now into the second point. And we'll, now we'll get into the text we read at first. But you kind of see the context here. He's with Levi and these tax collectors around the table. Now we see feasting with the, with the bridegroom. Number two, and we're looking at verses 33 through 35. Whoever these people are that uh, approach Christ next in our story, it's actually a bit unclear when you um, contrast Luke's account with Matthew and Mark's parallel account. We don't know quite who the individuals are that are coming now to object uh, regarding this meal. But one thing we know is clear. They don't like the feasting that they see Jesus doing with these people, with these sinners, these tax collectors. We don't like it. In the verse we just read, the Pharisees and, and, and their scribes, they objected uh, with reference basically to who Jesus was feasting with. Who are, why, how could you eat with these guys? So their objection had to do with the, the, the people around the table. 
Now, what we see in verses 33, uh, and as we'll kind of keep going through 35, is that these guys are, are objecting to the fact that Jesus is even feasting at all. What are you doing feasting at a time like this? And we'll, we'll get into that, but let me read you verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So they're coming out and going, why aren't you fasting? Why are you guys celebrating around the table? Why are you feasting at all right now? Now, um, if I were to try to quickly boil down for us what fasting is, um, I think that fasting at, at bottom is essentially an expression of longing for God's deliverance in one way or another. Fasting is an expression for um God's deliverance in one way or another. And that's why, if you look closely in verse 33, this fasting is, is coupled with offering prayers. So he says, he says, they're the disciples of John, fast often and offer prayers. So fasting and praying go together. And the word there in the Greek for prayer actually is this idea of begging God, begging God to do something on your behalf. So fasting is this idea, it's kind of, it's this, it's involved in kind of longing for deliverance from God, for something. Like, God help me. The way that I have put this before, probably not for you, but it's, I can't remember if I've said it in here or not. Um, but I've seen fasting, it's been helpful for me to see it this way, as uh, essentially a physical exclamation point at the end of our spiritual sentences. If that sounds confusing, hold on, just hear me. We're praying to God. There's our spiritual sentence. We're fasting. There's our physical bodily exclamation point that says, God, this is how bad I want your deliverance. I will hold food. I long for you to come and do this in one way or another. And that's how serious I am, exclamation point. We should ask when the last time was that we prayed so fervently <laughs> that we just said, man, I got to accent this prayer, offering this prayer with fasting. I, I can speak for myself. I, I, I don't fast very often. And I, and I thought about it. I was like, what, is, what does that say then? I mean, I'm quick to note all the things I wish could be different. But it's like I'm more committed perhaps to, to grumbling in God's face than really groaning and, and, and yearning for his deliverance. I'd, I could point it all out, but I'm not willing to say, God, here's how much I want to see you come and fix it. I'm more just like maybe pointing the finger or I'm ready to fix it myself, something like that. But when we fast, we're saying, man, God, you're the only one. This is how bad I want you to come. We should be that in that place on a regular basis, probably. When was the last time you were there? Now, to understand the uh, this 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 group's objections at this point, we need to understand the context a little bit there in Israel. Um, I think it's it's assumed that that much of their fasting and prayers were offered uh, in that time as an expression of their longing for deliverance from Rome. 
from Roman occupation. Israel is under the hand, under the foot, so to speak, of Rome at this point. They're in the land, but they're kind of not in the land. They're just guests. They're visitors in the promised land. And these enemies, these pagan, pagan enemies are occupying it. And so their fasts in these days uh, and had to do with this kind of desire for deliverance in that way. Just kind of saying, man, God, we know because of our sin, you exiled us to foreign lands. We know that. And we know that you brought us back under Zerubbabel. And we had high hopes for what was going to happen. I mean, we were celebrating. This is going to be amazing. And now here we are, 500 years later, still under the enemy's hand. Still almost as if we're exiles in our own land. When are you going to come and deliver us and vindicate your holy name? So, so here is why John and his disciples were fasting. This is what they were longing for. This is what the Pharisees and their disciples were longing for. And this is why, this is why they're so confused and troubled when they come upon Jesus and his disciples and they're just like celebrating like ain't nothing wrong. They're just throwing a party, hanging out. Your disciples never fast, man. They're not serious about this. We read in Luke 7 that um, they would call Jesus a glutton. And a drunkard. You're just a glutton and a drunkard. You're not, you're not holy like us longing for God's deliverance. You're just, you're just filling your belly and you're making your disciples into the same kind of gluttons and the same kind of drunkards. How could you have the nerve to do something like that at a time like this? When the enemy is in our land. Where, Jesus, is the fasting? Where is the praying? Where is the longing for deliverance? Well, Jesus answers them in verse 35. He answers their question, essentially, by saying this. Well, we are no longer longing for deliverance because the deliverance is here. You guys just don't have eyes to see it. But the deliverer and the deliverance that you're longing for, it's here. I'm right in front of you. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's what he says. He takes these objectors into this image of a wedding, which in their day, man, we got nothing on on Israel, right? They did seven days of partying, you guys, seven days, wedding feast, celebration, seven days, and it would be insane. It would be, it would be rude. It would be offensive for someone to fast at that time of feasting, at the time of celebrating. And Jesus is saying, man, listen, my disciples can't fast. The bridegroom is here. I mean, this is the time for celebrating. I'm here. And there is something hidden underneath those words. Uh, there's a hidden glory under this that, that I wanted to bring out for you for a moment. Because in countless Old Testament texts, 
You want to know who the bridegroom, who the husband of Israel is? Yahweh. Yahweh himself. And it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the husband. I'm Yahweh. And I have come. (laughs) I have come to bring the end time deliverance and kick off the end time celebration. All of you belonging for is beginning in me. Let me um, take you into some of that background just by reading you Hosea 2. It's a little bit long, so you can just listen if you want, or you can turn there. But it's, I mean, it's powerful, it's beautiful. This is the sort of thing that sits behind what Jesus is announcing. Put yourself in this story with Israel and, 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 and know that he's doing this in our own life as well. This is Hosea 2. God is, is speaking to Hosea about Israel, and he says this. Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Now, hold on for a moment. Baal or Baal or Baal, however you want to say it, was a Canaanite storm god, an idol, a false god. And Israel countless times goes to, goes to this god. Just keeps running to this God because, hey, listen, in an agrarian society, you need the storm. We got a little taste of that here, right? If the storm doesn't come, we're in a serious drought and my water bill goes up. I don't like that. We got to sacrifice to Baal. Well, that's where they're at. That's where they're at. And that's where they go time and time again. And they're saying, man, thank you, Baal, for bringing in the grain and the harvest. Thank you, my lover, my God. And Yahweh is saying, what is happening to my people? My bride is committing adultery. Therefore, verse 9, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I'll uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I'll put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me, the false gods. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the, day, for the feast days of Baals when she burnt offerings to them and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. And then, after all this harshness and severity, he just pivots in mercy for his people. This is what he says in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there 
I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of, of Achor or trouble, make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me, catch it, my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Israel is on the brink of exile, as Hosea writes this, for her adultery, for her idolatry. And with these words, God holds out hope for the latter days, for the end time when God himself would come yet again to an adulterous people and recovenant himself in marriage, betroth them to him, grace. And at that time, if you noticed, mirth, joy, celebration, feasting will commence once more. That's what Jesus is doing with these sinners and these tax collectors. He's feasting with them. And in that, he's saying, listen, that time that Hosea and the other prophets all talked about, it is coming now. And I am here for my adulterous, sinful, stained, broken, blemished bride. Oh, and I'll clean her up. I will betroth her to myself. So tell me, if the bridegroom is here, who in the world could keep on fasting? What does it say, applying this to ourselves for a moment, what does, it, what does it say, guys, about our God, that quite literally his presence is a party? Thought about that? We, we do. We think of God. Sorry, I keep hearing the clicking. We think of God as, as, as holy and fearsome. And it's true. You know, you, you open up the, the, the book of Revelation and people are falling on their faces. Absolutely. You know what they're also doing? Singing and celebrating and clapping hands and shouting and feasting. Because our God's presence is a party. And I, I had to wonder, man, do, do we experience him like that? Do we know the joy of our Father like that? So that so that when we're sitting around a table and there's just like there's like a banquet and we're just laughing and having a great time and drinking good food and good wine, we say, Man, this is what it's like to be in the presence of God, because that's what Jesus points to. He says, this is happening because I'm here. This is what happens where the Son of God, where the bridegroom comes, shows up. My presence is a party. And so we have to ask ourselves, yeah, do we experience this? Do we know God in this way? Are we feasting with him? Have we entered into the assurance and joy that is ours in him? Or is something kind of keeping us out? 
or if we kind of bought into the lie that God's just more of a, a, a naysayer and a buzzkill and everything else. He's the party stopper. We are the adulterers. We are the idolaters. But he's betrothed himself to us in faithfulness, righteousness, justice, steadfast love forever in Christ. Now, where uh, Jesus goes next, uh, it's as if the, the party is just is, is, is popping off the hook. And it's as if the lights are just kind of flashing and the music's blaring. And then he, he just walks up now and he just pulls the cord and it all goes dark. He shows us, wait a minute. Yes, the party is here, but something's going to perhaps go wrong. Or something's different about this. He says in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. There's going to be fasting. It's going to come. Just not right now. The imagery he uses is, is, is jarring. It's this picture of the bridegroom being almost ripped from his own wedding celebration. He's going to be taken away from, from the party. And it might have been a bit enigmatic to his original audience, but it's painfully clear what he's talking about to us, is it not? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the day of his departure. He's talking about the day when the bride turns against the bridegroom yet again. And you have the masses of people surrounding, you know, Pontius Pilate and whatever. Crucify him! The bride betraying the bridegroom yet again. We don't want this marriage. I don't want his love. But here's the amazing thing about our God. Our our great act of betrayal is his great act of mercy. It, It doesn't stop him from coming at his bride. He actually uses our betrayal to beautify his pride, to wash us in in the water of his word, to wash our garments white in the blood of the lamb. That's how we get white, because the son of, of man is taken away. The bridegroom is taken away. This is Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Is it not? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You and me, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We were betraying him. He was bathing us. He was beautifying us. He was blessing us. You get that? That's how the heavenly bridegroom works. He just wasn't going to let us out of this covenant. (laughs) This new covenant that he's bringing. This recommitment in marriage. We're not getting out of it. He's going to take our betrayal and use it. To make us spotless. Beautiful. Turn our hearts back to him again. And I just thought, man, husband, is, is, is that your, is that my approach to marriage? I mean, 
Paul begins that by saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So we're in there and it's like, wow. I mean, am I loving my wife like that? To where it's like, listen, I will, I will bless. I will, I will beautify. I, I will, I will wash you. Even if it costs me my life. Even if I have to absorb conflict or, 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 or wrong, I will lay down my life for you. It's amazing. Third uh, heading I gave you, feasting in the new day. Feasting in the new day. Now we're in verses 36 to 39. Now Jesus... He proceeds to give these objectors even uh, deeper rationale for his feasting with sinners and tax collectors. And he, he does this by drawing their attention to the new day that is dawning in him. He, he gives these pictures um, to kind of represent this reality. A new day is dawning in him. Let me read you verses 36 to 38. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. This might be confusing to you at first, so just bear with me. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So he gives two pictures there, essentially getting at the same point, but I'll show you what he's doing. Uh, in, in the first parable, he, we're trying to essentially repair an old garment by tearing a piece from a new and patching it on. And Jesus says, listen, if, you, if you're going to do that, here's what's going to happen. Both garments will be destroyed, both the old and the new, because you've cut from the new. And when you go and patch that onto the old uh, well, guess what? When you wash it and things like that, it's going to shrink and it's going to pull away from, from the old garment and it's going to make the rip even worse than it was before. So the moral of the story is you can't just add the new to the old. It's going to destroy them both if you do that. The same thing goes with the second parable. And this one might be a little bit easier for us to understand. He says you can't just put new wine into old wineskins. So their wineskins would get, would get brittle. As they aged, they would lose their elasticity, okay? And new wine is still fermenting. So as that wine ferments, it kind of expands. And if the new wine is in this old wine skin, as it expands, it bursts the wine skins. And, and, and both the wine and the wine skin are now destroyed. So again, you can't just add the new to the old. If you do that, you destroy them both. So great, we understand the pictures, but what in the world is he talking about? What in the world is he talking about? The old, I think in these parables, is, is Judaism. It's the old covenant under Moses. The new is that which Christ is initiating in his person and work. What Christ has come to do. Now, these pictures remind us that what Jesus is doing isn't just repairing the old structures, the old forms of Israel. He's not just repairing them. He's moving us forward in the plan of redemption. Stay with me. If Jesus says it, I think it's important for us to know. (laughs) 
He's moving us forward in the plan of redemption. He's moving us into something deeper, fuller, ultimate, spiritual, something new. So what's emerging as new is connected to the old, to be sure. It is connected to the old covenant and the old, the, the old way under the law and things. But he is identifying here a fundamental discontinuity. That he is bringing in something fundamentally new and you can't just patch his work onto the old system. He's bringing us into a new day, the new day of the Spirit. Now, perhaps the best way to go about this, let me just give you a couple examples of this and you'll be able to see it uh, from his ministry. One of the clearest examples uh, is probably found when, when on the day of his death, I don't know if you remember this, but as he was breathing his last, Luke 23, 45 says this, the curtain of the temple was torn in Did you hear that? So as Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, it's the Lamb of God to which all those previous lambs were pointing. The curtain in the temple is not kind of, you know, made stronger, thicker, more beautiful or something like that. It's destroyed. It's ripped. The the new work of Christ can't just patch on to the old. It's breaking out of the old forms. It's actually rendering the old forms irrelevant. And part of the, the old system, he's moving from the shadow and the picture to the substance and the reality. So that curtain kept people from the presence of God, right? The holy, the, the, the high priest could go in there. No one else really could. Well, now what's happening is Jesus is, as he's dying there on the cross, he is taking the temple presence of God and it's breaking out now. And he's making it accessible to all by his spirit. He's moving us further along in the plan of God. This is the new thing that he is doing and it can't be contained by the old forms. You're going to burst the wineskins if you try to keep it there. And so Jesus is taking all that the temple stood for and, and, and moving us forward in it. Saying, hey listen, I am the temple. You're going to destroy me, and in three days it's going to be rebuilt. Or my skin, essentially, is the veil. And as you rip that, guess what? Now, now, now sinners have access to the throne room of God's grace through Christ. Or in Acts 2, when the Spirit falls, now you and I are not a building, not a room within a, within a room, within a room, in a building, but now you and I. A people, the church, are the temple of God, his presence in us. So we can't just go back to these old forms. And what Jesus is doing can't just kind of fix the temple. And we're all streaming to Jerusalem now, uh, literally on the map. He's saying, man, it is breaking out. And, and in, in, in Revelation, all of, all of the new heavens and new earth is called what? The new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is going to be everywhere. My presence will be ever. You can't just contain that in the old forms. He's breaking it out. He's not opposed to the old forms. God established those, but they served their purpose, and he's taking us into something new. Let me give you one more example. And if you're worried, we're almost done. 
to help us understand this further, there, there's one other place and only one other place in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, hey, listen, what I'm doing is new. Only one other place where that same word is used. You know where it is? It's in Luke twenty-two twenty, where Jesus is around the table again. Night of his betrayal. He holds up that cup and says this. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Something new is happening with this blood, you guys. What I'm about to do on the cross is going to bring in something new. What he's referring to there is clear reference to Jeremiah 31. Let me read you the promise of the new covenant. And you'll see how you can't just add this to the old. Even God says it. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 33. Behold, this is God, I should say, looking over his stubborn and hard-hearted people who he just could not reach with the law. (laughs) He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them. and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. You hear that? Old covenant laws on the outside. Scribed in stone on the tablets, right? New covenant law comes inside. By the Holy Spirit of Christ written on my heart. Old covenant, we could never keep the law. It could never police us into obedience that was fit for the holy presence of God. It never worked. Our hearts were hard. Our hearts were stubborn. All of Jeremiah points this out again and again and again. Someday maybe I'll do a sermon through that with you. But then it climaxes in this point where he says, you know what? Fine. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take out that old heart. And I'm going to give you something new. I'm going to write the law, not on the outside, but on the inside. And that, Jesus is saying, is going to be initiated by my death on the cross. That's what I'm going to do. I'll be crushed for your sins so that my spirit is poured out upon you. Upon you. The Bible talks about this whole process. Like, man, we're going to... You and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, we now have this like rivers of living water flowing out of us. And because the presence of God is now in us, not in a temple somewhere... But in us, the law of God is now in us, not on tablets in a temple somewhere, but written on my heart. He said, man, now there, now there's love here for God and love for others that wasn't there before, that couldn't be there before without his intervention. And Christ is doing that through his death and his resurrection. But... Let me ask a question, and this is where we'll close. I had more here, but I'll I'll skip it for the sake of your uh, sanity. 
Christ can't just be added to the old forms. We don't just kind of patch him into our life. Hey, God, can you fix me here? Fix me there. If I scratch your back on Sundays, will you scratch my back during the week? He comes and he takes all of us. We give him all of us. Christ isn't added to our life. He becomes our life. Right? Amen? If that's the case, if in Christ I have been new, made new, and the new day has dawned, and, 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 and his spirit is in me, his presence is in me, his law is in me, rivers of living water are flowing out of me. Here, here's the question I have for you. If we've been made new, how many of you feel old? How many of you feel old? And like, what am I still doing? I mean, I look at my last week, I go, what am I still doing? Getting up in the morning grumpy and angry that, you know, Bella peed her bed or whatever. (laughs) Or things didn't go according to my plan. I just threw my whole day off. What's up with it? I don't feel like rivers of living water are coming out of me. I feel like California did two months ago before the rain came. You know, just parched and dry and in a drought. You know? Feel that sometimes? Like you almost felt like here, like when you went to turn on the water, it's like the faucet groaned at you in pain, right? Like, don't draw any more from the reservoirs. And sometimes our lives feel that way. We live in this new day and yet we feel old. And my question is, what is that? What do we do? With that, how do we make sense of that? If Jesus say, man, when I'm here, you're feasting. It's amazing. <laughs> and look at what I've come to do. It's all new. And we're gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna be glorious. And we're sitting here going, yeah, but I hurt a lot. I'm, I'm still struggling a lot with sin and other things. What, what do we make of that? Well, for this, I direct us back to those words that I did not deal with really back up in verse 35. This brings us into that fourth point, feasting and yet fasting. Verse 35, remember Jesus says this, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And he says, they will fast in those days. So in other words, I I think we live in those days where fasting is once again appropriate. Because the bridegroom has been taken away. This text reminds us that we live in this kind of tense, kind of tension between what Jesus has already begun in his life, death, resurrection, and what he's not yet completed in his, his final return. We live in between the two comings of the bridegroom. It's almost as if uh, 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 we've been betrothed to Christ, but the marriage has not yet been fully consummated. That's why Revelation 19 is the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's coming in full on that day. And we're here going, man, I wanted more. I, I expected more. But it's important that we know we live in what theologians and I would call the already and the not yet. Man, that day, that new day has already dawned in Christ, but it's not yet reached high noon, so to speak. So here's what that means. We live in a mixed age where we both feast and fast. Where we both celebrate and grieve. 
We feast because Christ has risen victorious. Because he's overcome, you know, every enemy. Because our salvation is sure. Because God will, he will, hear me, he will complete the good work that he's begun in you. So we feast, absolutely we feast, like Levi, around the table. And we call people and say, man, will you enjoy this meal with me in the presence of God? My God is good. But we also fast. We also look at the pantry full of food sometimes and we say, you know what? No, not tonight. Because we're not yet home. And there's longings in our heart for the return of our bridegroom. I want, I want him to come. I want that feast in full in his presence. I want this sin gone in my life. And here's how bad I want it. God, exclamation point, deliver me. So we fast because Christ is hidden from our eyes. Because he's not yet put every enemy under his feet. Because the flesh still wages war against the spirit. Because we are still burdened by the body of death that clings to us like Romans 7, Paul says. Who will set me free from this body of death? We feast and we fast. If we only feast, then we essentially live as if Christ isn't gone. If we only fast, then we live as if Christ isn't risen. We feast and we fast. Because, man, we know we're secure. But gosh, we long for the fullness of our salvation in his return. Amen. Let's pray. God, it is tough to know how to interpret our lives sometimes in light of your text, in your Bible, your promises. Because it's true, we read about the new day, the new age, the, the new work of the Spirit that you were bringing into our midst and into our hearts. And we quite honestly, sometimes expect more. We want more, and I don't think that's bad, but God, we also realize that we're not yet home and that we're not going to be glorified in this in this um, place. We're not going to reach sinless perfection and we're not going to have the full enjoyment of your presence on this earth. Until you come. Until you come. And so, Jesus, we rejoice in what your spirit has begun. The down payment of our redemption. But we fast and we pray and we long for our full inheritance that's coming in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.